Ethiopian forces have been at war with the regional government of Tigris. The government imposed blackout has made it virtually impossible to get accurate information about what's happening in the region. Many others fear the conflict may have only just begun. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and look at how news is reported. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. After being locked out of one of the biggest news stories on the planet, reporters are playing catch-up on the conflict in the Ethiopian region of Tigray. Almost two and a half years after the murder of Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, press freedom advocates try to do what the Biden administration has chosen not to, bring the crown prince to justice. In a world plagued with information overload, old school newsletters delivered via email may be the antidote we need. And so you think you're funny. I think he's trying to make a joke. Oh, it's okay. But can you be funny on Zoom? We begin in Ethiopia, where journalists have finally made it back into a region they had been locked out of for months, Tigray. Fighting broke out there in November between federal forces sent in by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's administration and soldiers on the side of the regional government, led by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. Complicating the picture are troops from neighboring Eritrea, also at war with the TPLF. With journalists on the outside looking in, news had been trickling out of Tigray. Stories told by refugees, disturbing ones of human rights abuses, war crimes, signs of an ethnic cleansing offensive. About 10 days ago, a handful of international news organizations, including this one, were finally allowed to return to Tigray. Now that they're back reporting on an ultra-sensitive story, the authorities in Addis Ababa have been taking issue with the coverage. Our starting point this week is a city that the world really hasn't seen since November, the Tigrayan capital, Mekele. There is a normalcy in the images coming out of Tigray that is deceptive. People going about their business in Mekele, while just outside the city, stories trickle out of what the United Nations calls possible crimes against humanity. For months, journalists were locked out of the conflict zone by Ethiopian authorities determined to control the coverage. Al Jazeera was one of seven news organizations finally allowed back into Tigray last week. Its cameras were met by people who, after having their internet shut down, their communications cut off, were driven to get the word out. Journalists were finally able to confirm, through on-the-ground reporting, accounts of gross human rights abuses that up until now had only been speculated upon from a distance. The government has its own narration. It wants to uh, tell the international community that the conflict happened without much casualties on civilians. But as we know, war has ugly, ugly features, especially destabilizing civilians. Mass atrocities can be committed. This is the ugly face of uh, the conflict. Or Ethiopian government forces 
are forming part of the problem and not the solution. Um, they've systemically prevented the addressing of the humanitarian issue by blocking the humanitarian agencies, NGOs, from accessing swaths of the Tigray region. So this has exacerbated the hunger issue. And it definitely points to the state wanting to prevent the greater public from learning about the uglier side of the war. This conflict comes down to a power struggle involving different ethnic groups, Tigrayans, Oromos, and Amharas, and the governments that claim to represent them. Tigray is in northern Ethiopia, bordering Eritrea, and is led by the TPLF, the party that used to control the central government in Addis Ababa. Since 2018, Ethiopia's government has been led by an Oromo, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed. A year ago, Abiy put all elections on hold, arguing that sending millions to the polls during a pandemic would put lives at risk. The TPLF defied Abiy. In September, it held a regional election in Tigray, which it says it won. When Abiy's government declared that election illegal and cut off funding to Tigray, TPLF forces attacked a federal military base, and Abiy responded by sending in the troops. Shortly thereafter, most journalists were locked out. When they finally got back in, federal authorities took issue with their coverage. But they didn't go after those journalists. They targeted Ethiopian producers, translators, and fixers, hired by the likes of the Financial Times and Agence France Presse. Among those arrested, the local fixer, who took an AFP photographer to a memorial service. So you invite the foreign media, and if you arrest their local partners, that is uh, incapacitating them because most of these journalists are not Amharic or Tigrinya speakers. They don't know how to, where to go and how to go. So they need their local assistance. And uh, we don't yet know why they are arrested. Uh, the, the, the exact charges against these people are not yet clear. International media cannot get the full picture without translators, fixers, people who know the landscape. So the international media that is allowed to cover, you know, events from Tigray, <laughs> are left with no support from, from the local uh, fixers, local translators, but only the government. It is believed that the majority of the Tigray region remains inaccessible, especially the rural areas where the humanitarian crisis is at its worst. So what kind of information are they going to come out with? Those fixers and producers have since been released, but message sent and understood. In the months that news outlets and NGOs were locked out of Tigray, some found workarounds to tell what is a distressing story. Amnesty International had testimony that various villages had been burned down. Lacking investigators on the ground to confirm that, it used eyes in the sky, satellite imagery instead. CNN also had eyewitness accounts from refugees who had made it out. It used animation to illustrate their stories. They didn't ask any question. They just opened fire. And the UK's Daily Telegraph got hold of a phone video reportedly shot by an Ethiopian soldier. The footage you are about to see is graphic and disturbing. The video, which is about four minutes long, uh, it shows uh, Ethiopian soldiers 
uh, walking amongst the bodies of uh, about 40 dead villagers uh, outside of a monastery. You can see noticeable uh, bullet wounds in the back and the evidence points to summary executions the Ethiopian army committing an atrocity outside of the monastery. Our digital team was able to uh, geolocate it to a place called uh, Debra Bay in western uh, Tigray. And the soldiers were uh, recording and, and they specifically talked to one of the survivors. Uh, they were even discussing uh, whether to finish him off, to kill him or not. We are trying to get uh, some more witnesses to verify uh, these uh, specifics, but the phone communication is, uh, was done last week and it was impossible to get uh, testimonies about that situation. The Ethiopian government refuses to call this a war or even a military conflict. It prefers the term rule of law operations. In January, its press secretary accused the international media of sensationalistic reporting and fixating on Prime Minister Abiy over the Nobel Prize he won in 2019 after making peace with Eritrea, his current allies, in Tigray. Had we been granted the interview that multiple government officials denied us, we would have asked, what did you expect? The press secretary also said international news outlets were guilty of essentializing and condensing complex issues into a single narrative, that the reporting has been one-sided, the it takes two to tango argument. So the... Uh point that the press secretary raised is valid to some extent. I can give you an example on this, you know, uh, a recent uh, coverage by the New York Times reported that, you know, Mr. Abe, winner of the 2019 Nobel Peace Prize, launched a surprise military offensive in November. This is a big distortion. This was not a surprise military offensive launched by uh, the Prime Minister. The surprise military offensive was launched by the TPLF. It was a dangerous game that they lost. So uh, this kind of coverage does not help anyone. She argues that it's a it's a single narrative thing. Of course, she, she meant to say that the Ethiopian government's involvement in Tigray was forced upon it, and that it's it's they also insist that it is a law enforcement. But you know, here's the challenge for, for that. This war did not happen overnight. The crisis deteriorated for every week, every month, every last hour of, of prior to the 4th of, of November. Um, there is only one narrative to that, and that's a narrative of, of, of a, a massive failure of managing the political differences in the country that led to the armed struggle between these two forces. The fighting in Tigray has gone on for months, and in just one week, journalists emerged with detailed allegations of ethnic cleansing, unsettling images of grief and suffering, but nothing close to the full picture. History teaches us, however, that war crimes are hard to hide, that no matter how difficult those responsible make it for investigators and journalists to do their job, those stories will be told they will come in time.
It's been almost two and a half years now since the Saudi Arabian journalist Jamal Khashoggi was murdered at the Saudi embassy in Istanbul. Now, press freedom advocates are out for justice. And they're going after the crown prince believed to have ordered the killing, Mohammed bin Salman. Johanna Hus has been following this story. Joe, what can you tell us about this new case against MBS? Well, this past Monday, uh, the Paris-based media watchdog Reporters Without Borders, which in French is known as uh, Reporters Sans Frontières, or RSF, filed a criminal case against the Crown Prince and four other Saudi officials for crimes against humanity for their systematic attacks on journalists, including Khashoggi. Now, this uh, case was actually filed in a German court because RSF's lawyers say that um, the German legal system is best suited to prosecute international crimes. RSF says that its aim is to hold Bin Salman and the other officials accountable for their organizational or executive responsibility in Khashoggi's killing, as well as their involvement in developing a state policy to silence journalists. And what other cases is RSF bringing to this German court in addition to Khashoggi's? So it details 34 cases of journalists currently behind bars in Saudi Arabia, uh, including a blogger called Raif Bedawi, who has been in prison since 2012 for insulting Islam through electronic channels. Now, since Bin Salman rose to power back in 2017, he has always sought to cast himself as a reformer. And there have been some measures to ease some of the country's social cultural restrictions, but the repression of dissidents, including journalists, continues. So there are these legal developments in Germany which are coinciding with political developments on the case in Washington. Yes, so uh, the case was actually filed three days after the US uh, released a declassified CIA report into the Khashoggi killing, uh, which concludes that Bin Salman approved the murder. Since then, the State Department uh, has introduced what is being called the Khashoggi ban, which uh, allows the US to restrict visas for foreign officials who are involved in serious extraterritorial counter-dissident activities. But despite all that, uh, the new Biden administration still refuses to say whether Bin Salman himself is actually on that new visa list, and they've decided not to impose any other sanctions. Now, we're going to have to wait and see if uh, the German court is any more willing to actually hold the crown prince to account than Washington or the White House is. Okay. Thanks, Joe. Where do you get your news? Twitter, the news apps on your phone, daily podcasts, the 9, 10, or 11 o'clock news. Do you bookmark certain news sites, or are you happy to let the algorithms and what they know about you do the work? More and more people are turning back the clock and getting their news via email. They rely on newsletters, which is where sites like Substack come in. Substack is a platform that helps writers set up and monetize their newsletters, and it's booming. Substackers are betting that you're worn out by the endless streams of information coming your way. Their newsletters make for one-stop shopping, and they aggregate, so there's more there, but only if you want it. The Listening Post's Minakshi Ravi now on Substack and the rise of newsletter journalism. We live in an age of information overload. News keeps breaking, feeds keep updating, the 24-hour broadcasts just keep coming. It's a steady drumbeat of notifications and news alerts. Enough to make any news junkie ask themselves, do we really want to endure the daily avalanche of information? 
maybe just a couple of emails a day, with select news and analysis could do the trick? Yes, emails. Not tweets, not Facebook posts, not Instagram videos. Emails. Well, email's been around for half a century now. So it really has stood the test of time. And it's the foundation of all we do on the internet. I mean, so much attention these days is paid to Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok. But none of these things are possible unless you have email to begin with. Well, one thing that really appealed to me uh, from the beginning is that it is not a technology that is owned by a single company. So it's not like any of these social media companies where your distribution is controlled by their algorithms. Also, I like the idea that on everyone's phone, everyone has an email app. So it's something that is very universal and it's very accessible. Even people who are older, who wouldn't be maybe comfortable on, on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever. And, and I'll probably put myself in that category for, for some of those, some of those networks at this point. Um, they're comfortable with email. Email newsletters. Even the term sounds dated. But they're growing in popularity and signal one of the more interesting trends in journalism. Big news outlets have been churning them out for years. The New York Times offers no fewer than 72 newsletters. Broad topics like breaking news and morning or evening briefings to more targeted material like the latest from the world of cars or tips for smarter living. Other publications, The Hindu in India, Build in Germany, Canada's Globe and Mail, all provide a range of email briefings in the form of newsletters. But what's really changed in this space is individual journalists putting out their own newsletters, and many of them are now doing it on a platform called Substack. Just as the pandemic was gathering steam in April 2020, I started self-publishing and that was on a WordPress uh, site. It soon became clear to me that I had to actively engage with my readers. And that's when I started looking at uh, newsletters. And when I started researching on what kind of options are available, Substack seemed like an obvious choice. Their professed mission is to help writers uh, reach their audiences. And I like the, the format and the ease with which you can get on the platform and start publishing right away. We've spent decades sort of exhausting and overwhelming our readers. We have not done a good enough job helping them separate the signal from the noise in the news cycle. And that's what they're really craving. And that's something that larger news organizations are really struggling to adjust to. And that's where the solo journalists come in. Because they are doing this alone, they are forced to define the things that they do really well and, and to relentlessly sort of focus on that. Um, and that sort of singular focus dovetails really well with what audience members are looking for. What we're looking for are filters and most importantly, a synthesis that will make sense of that flood of news that's coming at us from all sides. So it's what we traditionally call the editorial function, the gatekeeping function, but also that kind of news analysis, putting the pieces together so we can make order out of the chaos. You can't just write whatever the big news of the day is because that's gonna be covered in a more extensive way, faster, better by a 500 person newsroom. So you have to find holes. And that's what I've come to, to like about the format is just because you're not gonna be able to do 
everything you know that the Washington Post does or the New York Times does or these other outlets, and they're doing amazing work, there's still places where you can you can add value. And what Substack allows you to do is own your value. You know, when I have a good story and people notice it, more people sign up. And then I take those people to my next story. The people Judd Legum refers to are the thousands of subscribers to his newsletter, Popular Information. The subscription charge is $6 a month or $50 a year. Substack does not release specific numbers of subscribers or the earnings of its writers. But just do the math. Bill Bishop ranks at the top of Substack's news category. He writes Sinusism, a China-focused newsletter. He charges $15 a month and has tens of thousands of subscribers. Then there's Emily Atkin, whose climate crisis newsletter, Heated, earns her, quote, a six-figure income. Often, subscribers are paying for more than specialized, well-targeted journalism. Many of them are paying for access to a community of readers, like an entry fee to a club full of people who share an interest in a particular subject. And managing those communities is something that successful newsletter writers take very seriously. It comes with the territory. It's part of the job. For starters, from a financial perspective, a community gives you another thing that you offer your readers in exchange for the subscription. So they're no longer just accessing your knowledge, they're accessing the knowledge that an entire network of people offer. Um, these community members can become ambassadors for your brand. They want to see it succeed and they will encourage others to join. The more people that are in a community, the more vibrant it is, the more interesting it is, the more sophisticated the conversations that are happening in that community might be. A lot of such initiatives where uh, reporters are running their own newsletters um, is very much a product of the communities they serve. I'm constantly getting feedback from readers, just suggesting, uh, you know, issues I must look at. Um, so it's a very sort of a two-way kind of a relationship. Yes, it's only me writing and producing it and so on, but it's very much um, driven by the community as well. With a growing number of news outlets and journalists taking aim at our inboxes, newsletter fatigue could soon be a real thing. Email inundation means more stuff gets left unread. So for journalists who have gone all in on the newsletter strategy, what does it take to hold on to and grow a list of paying subscribers? The answers can seem counterintuitive. Since the beginning of the pandemic, I took my paywall down entirely and just said, I'm gonna make this free for everyone because I was doing a lot of reporting on the conditions of supermarket workers, the conditions of cable um, ins installers. And I felt like this information needs to get out there, but I haven't found that this has had any impact on the number of people who are willing to pay for the work. I think if, if anything, it's accelerated um, the growth of, of paid subscribers. If you can manage to help readers categorize your journalism, not as like a subscription, not as a transaction, but as one of the many things that they do in their daily lives to make the world a better place, then you shift the financial expenditure they're making your subscription into like the charitable support that they do. You can shift your work into the category of public good in people's minds. If supporting your journalism becomes one of the ways that they spend their dollars to make the world a better place, that ceiling is, is much higher. Finally, life on Zoom, Skype, Teams, Viber, Google Meet. There is no denying the value of those platforms, how they allow us to work from home. 
but they're not the same as the real thing. Spare a thought for your colleagues. They've been deprived of your insights in the workplace, your illuminating sense of humor. This video from Toronto-based comedian Bowman Martinez-Reed captures that. The difficulty amidst all the awkward hand-raising and unmuting of delivering that killer punchline virtually. It can be excruciating. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. There's just so much going on these yeah. last two weeks, you know? It's like America the anyway, remix. we should try it. <laughs> it's... Sorry, did you... Did you say something? It's like America. Oh, Sorry, I was going to say. <laughs> anyway, I was, it's I was like always... America the remix. <laughs> right? I think he's trying to make a joke. Oh, it's OK. <laughs> what, what, what was we that? <laughs> OK. What was that? I was going to say it's like, All right, it's like America like the just... remix. <laughs> right? Do you mind if we move on, Bowman? Don't worry. All right. Don't I, worry. I mean, as I was saying, you know, there's so much going on in America. Like, you you would think this was America the Remix. You know? <laughs> oh my God, that's so true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyway.